You know, as we've been thinking these past few days about these tragic deaths, maybe what strikes home in our own heart is that this is not just a random act or an isolated situation, that this is actually a continuation of what is happening in our world today. And what really you know, affects us is the fact that, yes, it happened in Paris, and Paris at this moment seems a little further away than Red Deer, we know that these things can happen in our own country, and we've even had incidences in our own country where people who have had a different ideology have done things that have attacked our parliament. You know, wasn't that amazing? Our own prime minister's life was endangered, and we recognize that these events are happening around our world. And so there's a, you know, I think when we see these things, it kind of shatters our false sense of security, that we're somehow safe. And I think you know, we, 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 we kind of, you know, feel at that moment a bit vulnerable. And we're trying to, you know, grab, grasp, you know, our emotional makeup. You know, how do we handle this? What should be our response? And especially as a follower of Jesus Christ, you know, what should be our attitude? And how should we respond to these kind of situations in our world? And I really believe that crisis is a great opportunity to to understand what it means to be a Christ follower. As a matter of fact, I would even argue that when crisis comes into our lives, it's, it's really a revelation of our true heart condition. And a lot of times we falter in those moments. And it's actually a, a deeper understanding because we all try to develop a sense that we have our life somewhat together. And we have to live with ourselves. And so we're trying to cope with life. But when crisis comes, what's inside comes tumbling out. Because we don't have the resources to kind of maintain, you know, I, I'm not going to call it a facade, but, you know, just the way we live life. And, and so what is within us begins to emerge out. And so I'm going to challenge us tonight to allow Christ's grace to so fill our lives that when we are struck with crisis, what comes out is the good stuff. What comes out is God's grace. What comes out is God's love. What comes out is Christ's compassion and Christ's forgiveness and Christ's understanding. That we would respond as if we, in a sense, were, you know, are are truly what we are, the temple of the living God, and that Christ is truly living within us. And so when crisis strikes us, we respond in that amazing way. But often what we discover is what's within us is fear and anxiety and distress and, and ambivalence and questions and sometimes even anger and hostility and frustration. So in our text today, Jesus is moving towards his final end and he's trying to prepare his disciples not only for what's about to happen to him, but also what's about to happen to them. Because how, how many recognize that when something happens to those we love, it affects us, isn't that true? It just does, that's the nature of things. And these people had given up everything to follow Jesus. And so he knew once he was crucified, it would have such an amazing impact on their lives as human beings. And so he's trying to prepare them for what is about to occur. And so he's gonna teach his disciples some important truths in his gospel. And so he withdraws them to a place of privacy in order to teach them. And you can tell that after the transfiguration experience, I think it was probably on Mount Hermon, far north. And they come down the mountain, and then last week or two weeks ago, I spoke about what happened as they got down below the mountain. There was a little demonized boy, and the father came, and the disciples could do nothing about it, but Jesus certainly could. And Jesus addressed the issue and challenged us to have what I would consider believing prayer, an authentic prayer of faith. And, and so there was all that confusion and chaos and crisis in that situation. 
And, and so in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50, we have what seemingly is unrelated verses speaking about what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And I, and I don't think that they're unrelated. I think they're totally connected. And as we're going to see that Mark puts them together, they really are. And we learn that this life of following Jesus is a life of humility. And what do I mean by humility? It's a life of dependency on God. And it's a life of service, and we're going to see that. It's, it's a life of suffering. Many times we end up suffering. Not that we, you know, uh, we want to, but it just, you know, some of the things that God asks us to do are not easy. How many know that's true? And it really requires more than what we've got. And so we are, we are forced to come to God and ask for help. We're, at, we're coming to God to ask for the grace to handle these things in our lives. And so today I want to look at three key lessons about discipleship that Jesus now is going to instruct his disciples so that they can handle the future uncertainties and the crisis that they're about to experience. And folks, you know, I think this is important that we learn this because if we, are, as we move into the future, you know, how many know the future is always uncertain? We don't know what's gonna happen. And how many know that there will be, you know, great opportunities, there's gonna be seasons of blessing and refreshing, but there'll also be seasons of challenge and suffering and difficulty, and, and we're not always prepared for these things. It just comes upon us and go, God, why is this happening to me? Like, why do you allow this stuff? And so we pick up the story in verse 30. It says, they left that place, and they passed through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. Why? Why was he trying to be, you know, not around the crowds? Because I believe he wanted time with his disciples. That's what Mark tells us here in verse 31. He says, because he was teaching his disciples. Now, you know, sometimes we don't think teaching is important. I would suggest that teaching is critical. And that's one of the major thrusts of our church family. I'm really passionate about educating and training and teaching because I, I really feel that sometimes as Christians we're underdeveloped and it causes a lot of grief in our life. And so he takes them aside, he begins to teach them and he says to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. Now what's fascinating about this statement of being betrayed into the hands of men, you know, the first thought that came to my mind is who's the betrayer? And who is the betrayer? It's one of Jesus' own followers. It's a man by the name of Judas. Now can you imagine someone that you've invested your life in is gonna turn against you? That's very painful. You know, there's a, no, a sense of betrayal what comes when the person that is the closest, closest to us, people that are the closest to us, all of a sudden go on a totally different path. And it's very painful. And we see it here. Jesus is betrayed by Judas. And you can imagine, you know, as Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas knew exactly where he was headed. He actually left the upper room and went to find the temple guards. He had already agreed ahead of time for a price, and for 30 pieces of silver, he went out and brought these people to a very sacred place. He knew what Jesus was gonna do in that garden. He knew this was a place where Jesus spent time in prayer, and there Jesus is praying when Judas comes with these temple rabbi. And what does, what does Judas do? He walks up to Jesus, and he kisses him. Now, how many know that's a sign of endearment, a sign of love, an expression of love? But in that expression of love, it's the very act of betrayal. Can you imagine how painful that really was? And Jesus knew this was all coming down. And we read that here. It says it. But in the Greek language, we can find that this betrayal 
can actually mean more than that. And what I mean by that is, uh, I, you know, I have, I have amazing uh, software programs in my computer. It's, it's amazing what you can have today for study helps. I actually have the entire Bible, uh, both Old Testament and New Testament. I can just run a cursor over a single, I can actually have, I have the New Testament in Greek. I can run my cursor over a word and it tells me all the different shades of meaning, the tenses, the verb, the noun, whatever it is. It, it's just amazing the tools you have at your disposal. And it's, what's fascinating is this word betrayal also means to hand over. You know, you could actually interpret this. If you wanted to, you could put down that, that Jesus knew he was going to be handed over. And what is fascinating is that the verb there betrayed or hand over is actually in the passive. Now, I'm not going to try to, you know, wow you guys with what I don't know. But I'm going to quote what James Edwards says, and I think this is very fascinating. He says, the passive voice of the verb actually conceals its subject. It looks like a divine passive. Now, that's a very, you know, I love these gr- grammar people in Greek. I mean, they have all these fancy titles. A divine passive. Doesn't that sound impressive? What he's basically saying is it's probably a reference to God without mentioning God. And the, the reality is, it was actually God himself that is handing over his son to humanity. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Isn't that an amazing thought that God, the Father, would hand over his son to sinful humanity to be crucified? And by the way, is that the truth? You know, listen to what John writes. For God so, what? He so loved the world that he handed over his son. He gave his son up. Now, you've got to think about this. Why would God the Father hand over his son? Because you know what? When he looks at you and me, he knows that apart from Christ's death and sacrifice, we will never have a relationship with him. God's love for us is so deep that he's willing to sacrifice himself in order for you and I to have a relationship with him. I, I, I don't think we fully grasp how much God loves us. I don't think we fully get it. I don't think we've ever had a deep enough understanding of God's love. I mean, could you imagine if God began to really download in our hearts a, a tremendous revelation of how much he loved us? Matter of fact, do you know what Paul's prayer was for the church at Ephesus? That we might know the love of God. You know, I think a lot of the things we do is because we're insecure and we make terrible decisions and we never realize how secure we really are in the love of God. We need to understand the depths of God's love. That's such a profound thing. So, what was the response of Jesus' disciples in verse 32? But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Isn't that kind of typical of us as human beings that when we, we're not comfortable with something, we tend to not ask questions? You know, we've, we, we just, we, you know what? They knew he was talking about something, but they did, really didn't want to go there. They, they had heard already earlier. This is the second time Jesus tells them he's going to die. They had already heard this, but they weren't ready for it. Maybe they were afraid that they would be rebuked like Peter was. Remember earlier Peter had made that great confession and and Jesus had told him he was going to die and and Peter had said not so and Jesus had to rebuke him and these guys could not grasp the idea that the Messiah and that's who they believe Jesus is and that's truly who he is had to suffer that did not filter into their hearts and minds and you know when you and I come to a situation with preconditions in our minds it's really hard to see the truth do you realize that that you and I sometimes look at a situation and even when we're confronted with truth because we have preconceived ideas, it's really hard to get past what we believe to actually embrace what we're seeing. It's true. It's very difficult. 
And they didn't want to believe this because in their mind they had this glorious picture of what the Messiah was going to do. He was going to conquer the Romans. He was going to elevate the nation. They were going to rule and reign with Christ. And Jesus is now telling them, that's not how it's going down. I'm going to have to die and you're going to have to suffer. Who wants to hear that? Nobody. That's exactly right. And so they didn't ask him to elaborate on what he was talking about. Wow. I don't think we always get what Jesus is about. How many think that's probably true? I think we miss a few things. I think we have an agenda. We have our own ambitions. We have our own desires. We have our own longings. We have our own hopes. And sometimes God's plan and purpose doesn't fit what we've got going. And it's really hard to reconcile them sometimes. And we struggle with it. We don't understand that it was costly. I mean, we understand that it was costly, but we often don't understand how that should impact us, especially when it comes to our attitudes and actions in today's current situations in our lives. Do you know we often respond to the issues of our day inappropriately because we're, we're ignorant of the implications of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? What does Jesus require of me? What does Jesus require of me to people who will hurt me or they have the potential to hurt me. What is he going to require of me, a follower of his? He's going to require me to love people. He's going to require me to forgive people. He's going to require me to pray for people. He's going to require me to do good for people. Is he not? And sometimes we don't want to do that. We just don't want to do that. That's, that's not what we really want to do. What happens when people are threatening with their ideologies that are different than ours? How do we treat people we disagree with or are threatened by? Do we disrespect them? Do we, are we filled with fear? Do we, we just you know, isolate ourselves away from them? Are we ambivalent? Are we hostile? Or we just don't know what to say? We don't know what to do. How did Jesus treat people? We've got to take a hard look at how he treated people because the way Jesus treats people is the way you and I need to treat people. What will it cost us to follow Jesus? Earlier in Mark chapter 8, we discover that he says, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples said, if anyone would come after me, he must what? He must what? Ah, uh, yeah, take up the cross, but first of all, we have to deny ourselves. You know, it's interesting. One of the fruit of the Spirit, one of the expressions of it is self-control. Isn't that true? And so self-control in a sense means I have to get control of myself and sometimes I have to deny what I really want to do. Sometimes when people say nasty things to me, I want to lash back. But I have to deny myself and control myself and not do that. Pastor, you're going, you mean I got to think all that stuff? I usually just lash back. You know, that's, that's an immature response to problems. You and I have to do a little more thinking than that. You and I have to say, Lord, help me not just to res respond in a human sort of way, in a naturalistic sort of way. In the, in, you know, I can't just respond in hurt and anger and frustration. I have to think about what I'm about to do because I actually represent you in this situation. I need to deny myself. I need to do the right thing. And sometimes the right thing is forgive this person or pray for this person or do good to this person. It's very challenging. Let me move on to the second thing that we learn. Not only is there's a cost to being a follower of Christ, but we see the context of being a disciple. What should disciples be seeking to accomplish? What makes for a great disciple? 
What should be our ambition? Because we all, you know, we all have longings and desires in this room. What should, what should we be longing to become? What are we going to see? Uh, and what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to call us to something that you and I would not consider a high goal and aspiration. He's going to call us to be a servant. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said if we're going to be great in his kingdom, we have to be what? The servant of all. You know what's fascinating? Mark's gospel, Jesus you know, gives us three predictions of his coming death. And this is what James Edwards, who's a New Testament scholar, says. In all three passion predictions, Jesus speaks of the necessity of his rejection, suffering, and death. And following all three, the disciples voice what? This is interesting to me. Their ambitions for status and prestige. How many think they were a little disconnected what in the world Jesus was about? They were thinking about how to elevate themselves, and Jesus was thinking about how to diminish himself. You know, they were thinking up, he was thinking down. They were on a totally different page than Jesus. How many actually, don't you guys think they were a little out of kilter with Christ? I mean, he's talking about dying for them, and they're talking about who's going to be first. How many think that just seems a little bit full of, it smacks of, and you know, as Christians, we know that's not a good thing. It just smacks of what? Self-centeredness. It doesn't smack of self-denial, does it? Not at all. It says, where am I fitting into the grandiose plans of God? You know, how do I, you know, get, in, get involved in all of this? Look at verse 33. It says, they came to Capernaum. Actually, Capernaum is in Galilee. I think they were heading south. They stopped off at Capernaum. That was where Peter had set up his fishing business. They probably went to Peter's house. It says, when he was in the house. Mark uses that expression over and over again while they were in the house. And why he does it is because this is the place where Jesus has time with his disciples to begin to explain things to them. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? You know, I love this. You know, don't you think Jesus knew what was going down? I think he'd overheard the conversation, but you know, he was good about it. He didn't say anything. They get to the house, and Jesus then, he says to them, hey, what were you guys talking about? You guys, you guys were actually bickering. What were you fighting about? And isn't a lot of our fighting having to do with we want our way, or it's about us? You know, it, you know listen, if you don't have to get your way, you don't have very much conflict. Well, that is true, by the way. You know, I learned something you know, all conflict is over who's in charge, who's in control. That's all the conflict. You remove that element, there's no conflict. Hey, I don't care. You want to do it that way? Fine with me. No conflict. But you see, when we, we stand our position, I'm, this is my rights, I'm going to exercise them, conflict is the inevitable result of that kind of behavior. It says here, but they kept quiet. Why? Because on the way they had argued about who was going to be the greatest, they were literally embarrassed to tell Jesus what they had been fighting about. You know, they didn't want to tell him. So, so they were they wanting to be first, and so what does Jesus do? He teaches them the essence and the essential difference that Christianity brings into our lives. I think this is such a critical lesson. Our faith is about serving others. Jesus was certainly aware of what was going on. He knows our hearts and he knows our wrong thinking. In verse 35, sitting down. I love this. This is a formal statement. Jesus is now about to teach. You know, all the rabbis sat down, all the people stood. I think we got this backwards in the modern age. I'm standing and you're sitting. What's the deal here? We're not practicing New Testament Christianity, right? No, it doesn't really matter. I had to throw that in. He's sitting down. Jesus calls the 12 and he says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. So why is service 
such a high value in the Christian life? Well, I'm so glad you guys asked that question. I'm gonna let James Edwards answer it for you. You know what he says? He said, the Greek world generally considered service demeaning and undignified. As a matter of fact, how many have ever heard of Plato? He's a very famous Greek philosopher. He said, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? Now, you have to understand the Greek mindset. Let me, let me explain to you what it was like. You know, the Greeks who opened, you know, began democracy, but it was a very restricted democracy. You had to be male, you had to be 30, you had to be a landowner. You know, most people were slaves, you know, so they didn't qualify. If you're a woman, forget it. You're in the house taking care of kids, you know. And, you know, if you're a, if you're a guy, you know, guy, these guys are so funny. They had all these slaves, and so they never worked. They sat around talking philosophy. What a great life. That's what they did. Isn't that amazing? So they thought that to work was a very demeaning and undignified behavior. So Jesus now, in total contradiction to that thought, you know what he does? He teaches the concept of service comes out of a concept of love for one's neighbor. The posture of the servant is a visible manifestation of the reality of God's love. Jesus actually comes to us as a what? A servant. Do you know Mark's gospel? That's the theme. You know, actually, chapter 10, verse 45 is the theme, key theme text of the entire book. It's sad there that Jesus did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Isn't that beautiful? And what he's really telling us is that if, you know, you want to fulfill the law of God, here it comes, real quick. You know how you do it? If you're going to love God, all you need to do is love people. That's the best way to love God, is by serving people. Not just loving people. Loving people has to be demonstrated. How do you demonstrate it? You meet them at their point of need and you serve them. Wow. This is biblical Christianity. That's what Jesus is teaching us. Now, so Jesus now addressed the issue of who's the greatest. I love it. Verse 36, he took a little child and he had him stand among them, taking him in his arms. I love this. So he takes a little child, puts him in the middle, and then Jesus takes him and puts his arms around him, and he says to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Now, when you and I see this picture, you go, oh, isn't that sweet? Jesus is loving on the little child. And you know what? In our culture, what, what is our thinking about children? We love kids. I would argue that the number one thing for, in the heart and mind of a Canadian is his family, and the number one thing that's the dearest to his heart is his children. We have elevated children in our culture today to an amazing level. Isn't that true? We just love them to pieces. They're, you know, they are at the center of our lives. But I want to just say something. When you have that mindset and you read these verses, you're going to walk away with the wrong understanding of the text. And I'll tell you why. Because in the ancient world, that's not the way it was. Actually, in the ancient world, there was such a high mortality rate, people were afraid to get close to their kids because most of them died. Okay, number one. Number two, you know, just even 50 or 60 years ago, I can remember my grandparents, it was an old saying that went something like, kids need to be seen but not heard. Children were not at the forefront of society at all. This is a rather recent cultural development. You and I need to understand that. And so when we're looking at this text right now, we have to see it in light of how they saw things. As a matter of fact, uh, in Judaism, James Edwards writes, children and women were largely auxiliary members of society whose connection to the social mainstream depended on men. Did you know that? Wow. Either as fathers or as husbands, they were good illustrations of the very last. In other words, kids did not amount to anything. They were nothing 
in that culture. So when Jesus took that child, it was like he was an invisible. He was a, you know, uh, a zero. And Jesus now elevates somebody that everybody else was ignoring. Jesus takes him and makes them this person at the center. And he says, now if you want to be great, you've got to accept this person that nobody else wants to accept. Everybody else is ignoring. You know, so Jesus is not saying that we have to be like children here. Rather, he's telling us we need to be like him in accepting the least in society. And so disciples are thus not to be like children, but to be like Jesus who embraces the children. It's Jesus, not the child, who demonstrates what it means to be the servant of all. Boy, do we ever get some of this stuff backwards. Isn't that true? It's amazing to me. So who is So that's all beautiful, Pastor, but what does this really have anything to do with us? Here's my question. So who is the least in our society today? Who are the people everybody else neglects, looks down upon, and avoids? Who are the people that other people just don't see? We just kind of walk by these people. They don't even matter. He says, these are the people you and I must serve. Wow. That's kind of challenging, isn't it? What about those who are different than us? What about those who may identify as wanting to harm us? How do we treat people of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, and different religious beliefs? Do you know the only way we're gonna reach people is when we love them. And the only way to love them is to serve them. And we're gonna play a clip because I think a lot of us today when we look at what's happened in our world and we see the kind of hatred that's directed towards people that are free-loving, democratic people, we become afraid. And all of a sudden, we want to withdraw from ministering to these people. But look what happens when we begin to love them. 48% of the Muslim in the United States of America believe that they are Muslim first, they are American second. Our purpose is to change this culture because they're infidel and what they're doing is not pleasing to Allah and we are the soldier of Allah who will make them do it. Kamal Salim was born in Lebanon to a devout Muslim family. As early as four years old, he remembers sitting at the kitchen table while his mother taught him about the Quran and his duty to Allah and Jihad. From my childhood, my mom said, one day you'll be a martyr, my son. You will die for the sake of Allah and you will exalt Islam. She said, if you kill a Jew, my son, well, your hand will light up before the throne of Allah, and the host of heaven will celebrate what you have done. Kamal was seven when his parents sent him to Muslim training camps to learn to use weapons and engage and kill the enemy. The boys were also taught another, more subtle form of warfare. We were training for what's called culture jihad, which is shifting cultures. Culture jihad is... It's unlike the sword, unlike the rifle, it is the jihad that will come into your world. By his 20s, Kamal was chosen to wage cultural jihad on America. In Islam, uh, liberty, freedom, monarchy, all these are idols and these must be brought down. So the liberty that you have in the United States of America, it's, it's anti-Islam. You know, so America must be changed. So I moved to the Bible Belt specifically. The Bible Belt was the strongest of strongest. Uh, that's where the, uh, the stout Christians are. And I want to take on the best of the best because I considered myself as, as a sword of Islam. I thought I'm anointed, I'm unique, I'm selected. I'm coming to a country and a culture to change it 
and I have the power of Allah with me. In the early 1980s, Kamal entrenched himself in a small Midwestern town. He began targeting men from poorer neighborhoods to recruit them to the Muslim faith. But one afternoon, his life would be in the hands of those he hated the most. I was going from one place to another to do a recruitment, and that day I had a car wreck. The car wreck was so severe, I ejected out of my car, landed on my neck, broke my neck in two places. This man came running to me, and he said, don't worry, we're going to take care of you, and everything's going to be all right. The ambulance came and picked me up, and now I go to the hospital, the orthopedic surgeon in the emergency room looked at my chart, and he just said, son, we are going to take care of you, and everything's going to be all right. The second day, I wake up in the hospital, and this uh, physical therapy, head of physical therapy, come and read my chart, and he turned around and he said the same thing word for word. We are going to take care of you. At first, Kamal was frightened by their words because these men were all Christians. You see, in terrorism, if they said we're going to take care of you, you'd better run. Surgeries to repair Kamal's broken neck were successful, but recovery would take weeks. After being discharged from the hospital, he would need someone to care for him while he recuperated. Kamal had no one. So the orthopedic surgeon opened up his own home to this stranger. In his home, they put me in the choicest room, in the most beautiful thing. I became like part of their family. They didn't see me any different. And now they have a basket set for Kamal. They put in money to free my bills from the hospital. Kamal was overwhelmed with the outpouring of Christian love. As he recovered, he began to help out around the house with cooking and cleaning. They have Jewish friends, they came from Israel, that they support, you know. And now I'm hugging Israelis and I'm cooking for Jews. I go, what has happened to me? When Kamal was able to take care of himself and return to his apartment, the doctor had another surprise for him. He said, this is the keys to the house, and here's an extra key, this is your new car. We just want to bless you. You can come anytime you want. So I go to my home. And I go to my cold place that I have been there in months, and dust is this thick. And I just got to settle this issue with my God to know that if, if it's real or not. So I walk inside, I shut the door, I go right in the eastern window, and I fall on my knees, and I put my hands to the heavens, and I cry up to my God. Allah, Allah, my Lord and my King, why have you done such a thing to me? I'm okay with the, with the car wreck. I'm okay with all this, but why did you put me among Christians? I'm confused. These Christians and Jews, they are, they're good people. There's nothing wrong with them. They don't want to kill us. They're not the same thing that I learned about them. Allah, these people have relationship with their God. These people, they cry out to the God and they answer them. I want to hear your voice, I want to hear you love me. If you're real, speak to me. I want to hear your voice. Guess what Allah said that day? Absolutely nothing. Kamal felt that because he questioned his faith, the honorable thing to do was to end his own life. So I went to reach out my guns and put it in the right place and clock out. I heard the voice. The voice knew me by name. He said, Kamal, Kamal, Kamal. Why don't you call on God of Father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? And now I fell on my knees and I put my hands to the heavens immediately as I heard the voice. And I cried out with every 
fiber within me. God, the Father, Abraham, if you are real, would you speak to me? God, the Father, Abraham, if you are real, I want to know you. Well, God, the Father, Abraham, came to a room. And he filled the room with his glory. And his name was Yahweh. The Lord is one. In his hand, he has holes in his hand. He has holes in his feet. His name is Jesus. I said to him, who are you, my Lord? Who are you? He said, I am that I am. I said, I'm a simple man with a simple mind. What is that supposed to mean? He said, I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. I am the beginning. I am the end. I am everything that is in between. I have known you before I formed the foundation of the earth. I have loved you before I formed your new mother womb. Rise up. Rise up, come on. Kum. You are my warrior. You are not their warrior. And I said to him, I said, my Lord, my Lord, I will live and die for you. He said, do not die for me. I died for you that you may live. That day, instead of taking his life, Kamal gave it to Jesus. He now has a new mission and travels the country challenging Muslims to... 48% of the Muslim in the United What do we learn from this? What did you learn from this? There are people coming to hurt us, but God is greater. What did you learn from this? That God has a plan. You know, sometimes we, as Christians, we get all opinionated. And there's Christians right now. We're upset with our, our prime minister. He's bringing people in. I don't know if he's doing it the right way. And I'm going... You know what? Let's scrap all that. Here's what we need to say. These people are coming. Is that true? Okay. Maybe God is bringing these people to us. You ever thought of it that way? Maybe God is giving us an opportunity to show his grace, his goodness, and his love to them. Because if we don't do that, folks, they're just going to build little ghettos and they're going to feed their hostilities and woundedness and brokenness and all the stereotypes that people have of each other. We've got to break that. We cannot live in fear. We have to be people who have love because the Bible says love, perfect love, does what? It casts out fear. Now, does that mean that everyone that's going to come here is going to become a Christian? No, it doesn't mean that. But I do believe that you and I have an opportunity. If we will not go to them, God says, I'll bring them to you. That's what he's doing. And we need to understand that. We need to understand that some of these people are going to come to our country, and you think the average Canadian who sees this terrorism around the world is going to just open up their arms and welcome them. I don't think so. I think fear is going to rule in hearts and minds of people. I think hatred and anger is going to be directed towards them. That's what they're going to feel. Right? Come on now. You know, who are the people? You know, I'm really convinced the church is the only people that bring hope and love and light into our world. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, we need to do what Jesus would do. You think Jesus 
Do you think that Jesus' disciples get the message that he's saying all the time? No, we're really slow on the uptake. You know, it wasn't long before these guys arrived in Jerusalem. You know, what did Jesus say? If you want to be great, what do you got to be? The servant of everyone. So what does Jesus do? He goes in the upper room. They're having dinner, and they all have dirty feet. And why do they have dirty feet? Because there was no servant there, and nobody wanted to wash anybody else's feet. Nobody wanted to be the servant because they were still locked into who's the greatest. And so what does Jesus do? And John, we read this, chapter 13 and verse 4. He says, so he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And then in verse 14, Jesus says this, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now, is Jesus teaching us that we must go around washing people's feet no what he's teaching us is that you and I must find the needs in each other's lives and meet those needs it's far more practical than that that's what he's really getting to which leads us into the discussion of who we accept Jesus said those who are not who are for us are not against us. And then another interesting story, we pick up the vignette in verse 38. Teacher said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. We told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, but for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. Isn't it fascinating? John is rebuking this other person because he's casting out demons in Jesus' name. You gotta think of the irony in this. Just a little earlier, they had come down the mountain. What were the disciples trying to do? Cast out a demon. Were they successful? No. And what are they doing? Rebuking someone who is successfully doing what they were unable to do in the name of Jesus. How many think there's a little irony in that? And isn't often the time that we become the most critical when people are doing the very thing we know we should be doing or could be doing or ought to be doing and they're doing it and sometimes we feel threatened by that and so we criticize it. You know what I learned from this story? It's real simple. Aside from the basics Jesus Christ is God. He came to earth and died. He rose again. And if we put our faith in him, we're going to heaven. That's the basics. You all got to believe that. But you know, I studied the Bible now for 40 years. You know what I'm learning? The longer I study it, the more complex it is, and there's the more variety of viewpoints about all kinds of things in the Bible. Isn't that the truth? Mark, isn't that the truth? You know what? Let's not get hung up on all that stuff. I really don't care if you have a different viewpoint on this, that, and the other thing. Who cares? Do we love Christ, and are we trusting him for our salvation? And if we do that, then we need to include everybody that believes that. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. But let me move on to the final thing we learn about discipleship, and it's simply this. It's the challenge of discipleship. We need to be living in such a way that we're not causing others to sin. We need to live an exemplary life. We need to be examples. As a matter of fact, Jesus here is warning us against causing others, especially weak, new, and struggling Christians to sin. Look what he says in verse 42. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone. I, you know what? This is funny. I'm looking up the Greek here, and there's actually the word donkey in this text, but you never see it translated into English. 
Why? Because he's talking about the donkey that's pulling the millstone. And so what he's basically saying, this is not a small millstone. This is the big one that only the donkeys can pull, okay? So how many get the picture? So the translators are doing us a favor and helping us understand what he's talking about here. Now, the ancient people, do you know that they were afraid of the sea? And the sea was always regarded as a very dangerous place. It always spoke of destructive, you know, destructive things, the chaotic things, you know? And so to be cast into the sea was to be, that's a, that's a very negative image and to have a large millstone tied around your neck so that you were incapable of escaping destruction what is Jesus warning us against he's saying it's a bad thing to help facilitate the failure of other people in following Christ if my behavior actually you know causes other people to fail in their faith in Christ that's a very severe judgment that will come against me wow How many catch that? That's a pretty heavy warning here that Jesus is giving us. Isn't that true? Isn't that what he's saying? Read it. You know, sometimes we read these texts and I just think we fly over them. No, I think we better slow down and say, okay, I need to live the kind of life that will not cause people to be tripping up and falling away from God. That's what he's saying here. But not only that, in verses 43 to 48, we have a warning against allowing sin to have dominion in our own lives. It says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into Gehenna or hell, as it's translated here, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, for it is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. You know, sometimes you do things in life and you question, why am I doing this? And recently I've been studying Greek, you know, and I've been saying to myself, why am I doing this? Why am I going through all this pain? And um, I have a little textbook this thick, and it's a reference book. It's grammar, 746 pages, no, 64 pages of reading. That's required for this course, and it's not pleasant reading, okay, So the good news is every once in a while when you're doing what you should be doing, which is not always easy and pleasant, you strike a piece of gold. And I'm reading through here last night and I'm on page 693. Yay, I'm almost through. When Daniel Wallace, this New Testament uh, Greek scholar, says this regarding this text of Scripture, because how many know this text of Scripture has been really misunderstood? Do you know people have literally cut off limbs because they've read this? That's scary, isn't it? So what is Jesus doing? He's, Jesus often puts forth a number of challenges to current Jewish orthodoxy, such as that appendages and external things are what defile a person. Now, let me just move past his scholarly talk. What is he really talking about? Let me just point out to you. Remember the Pharisees? They were all hung up on the externals. How many know that's true? And how many know sometimes as Christians we get all hung up on what we can see? We're all hung up on the externals, what we do and what we don't do. Isn't that true? And so they're hung up on things like appendages. What is that an appendage in your body? Your arms, your legs, okay? It's not the torso, right? That's an appendage, okay? So that's why Jesus said, if this offends you, cut it off, right? So now Jesus is actually, you know, basically taking their thinking, the Pharisees' thinking, and, and is kind of challenging them with it. And he says this, if you read the text in light of that motif, yields the following force of the word if. Now, you notice that it says if, 
three times. If your eye does this, if your hand does this, if your foot does this. Remember that the if, it's called an if clause. It's called a conditional clause. I'm not gonna get into all that language. But let me just point out, it goes something like this. Let's assume that this is true for argument's sake. Your right hand offends you. Then cut it off and throw it from you. The following line, you know, Uh, Then the following line only enforces this interpretation, for it is better for you that one of your members should perish than that your whole body should be cast into hell. Jesus thus brings the Pharisee's view to its logical conclusions. If is, as if he said, if you really believe that your anatomy is the root of sin, then start hacking off some body parts. If you really believe that. After all, wouldn't it be better to be called lefty in heaven than to fry in hell as a whole person? No, I just could not believe this. This is in my textbook, right? God, very good. This guy has a good sense of humor, right? You know, the condition if thus has a provocative power seen in this light. What he's basically saying is the way this is structured is to provoke you to thought. You know, if this is true that it's, you know, sin is an external thing, then you better be dramatic about it and deal with the problem. But what Jesus is just doing is actually teaching the opposite. He's affirming that the appendages cause sin, as many, you know, that if people assume that, uh, then the first, forget the first class condition is here. He is getting the audience to sift through the inconsistency of their own position. It is not the hands, it's not the eyes, it's not the foot that causes our sin. What's causing us to sin? It's our heart. Okay? So what Jesus is saying is, look, the problem isn't outward. The problem is inward. You know what our real problem is? It's with our hearts. And by the way, when you're a Hebrew and you're thinking about the word heart, it's not the physical organ that's pumping blood through your body. The heart is the essence of your personality. It includes your mind, by the way. It includes all of you. Okay, And what he's saying is that we're basically rotten to the core. That's the issue. We have such a serious problem with sin, it's cut right down to the very essence of who we are. We have to address our heart condition. What do we need? We need a heart transplant. We need to be transformed. We need to be changed. We need to be born again. See, I don't think we understand how radical the gospel really is. It's really preaching that the essence of who we are needs to be changed. Are we getting the picture? That's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. So what about hell? I had to ask that. Because it comes up in this text, you know, because we have a whole bunch of Christians today saying, well, you know, know, hell isn't a big thing anymore. There's no eternal punishment. How many know that? That's a big discussion. There's very popular books out there talking about there's no real eternal punishment. But I want to just point out a little background. And James Brooks writes this and says, the word translated hell comes from the, you know, the word is actually Gehenna in the New Testament. And that Greek word is transliterated from two Hebrew words meaning the Valley of Hinnon. And if you go to Jerusalem today, there is a valley called Hinnon. And I've been there, I've seen it. The reference is to the deep valley on the south and west side of Jerusalem. In pre-Israelite times, it was the site of child sacrifice to Moloch. It was a terrible place. And some Israelites in times of spiritual decline seem to have adopted that practice as well. Isn't it sad when you and I conform to the pattern of this world? What do we do? We start doing what the, what the non-believers do. It causes these kind of terrible things to happen. In an attempt to stop the practice, Josiah, one of the godly kings, desecrated the site. During 
the intertestamental period, that's closer to the time of Jesus, it became the garbage and sewage dump of Jerusalem and a symbol of the place of punishment because worms and fires were always burning the garbage. Isn't that interesting? And so hell, when Jesus was talking about hell, he was talking about a physical place on earth. He was saying Gehenna. He was talking about the garbage dump of Jerusalem. He said there's always fires burning there. There's always worms eating up. It's a place of destruction. And I want to just say something. There is a place of judgment. We have to understand that. There, that, that does exist. It's, Jesus is the one that talked about it. It's not something we can say, well, he's just talking about a figurative place. No, he's talking more than just this physical place. He's talking about what will happen to people who don't address these issues in their lives. And then he says in verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. How many of you have ever read that and go, huh? What's he talking about here? But think about it, you know, in the Old Testament, do you know every sacrifice that was burned, they put salt on it? How many knew that? How many knew that? You knew that. Come on, some of you knew that? Okay, now you know. Every Old Testament burnt offering, they put salt on it. Okay, they just did that. And that's what happened. And so, now I want you to think, what is the New Testament sacrifice? Have you ever thought about this? We have to offer a sacrifice to God. You know, we can talk about the praise, the fruit of our lips being praised, but listen to what Paul writes in, um, in uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse one. He said, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, what are we to do? We're to offer what? Our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable or pleasing before him, which is our spiritual act of worship. So what am I saying to us? When Jesus is saying everyone will be salted with fire, when you and I offer our entire life to God, what we are really doing is offering ourselves up as a living sacrifice. And Jesus says you have to add salt to it. Now, why salt? Why is salt such an important commodity? Well, let me explain it to you. We don't appreciate it in Canada because we're in a cold climate and we can refrigerate things and then we've learned how to do refrigeration in this culture so that we can keep things from rotting and decaying, right? We can know how to preserve things. But in the ancient times, they did not have refrigeration. So how did they keep things from spoiling? They added salt to it. It was a preservative, and it was a cleansing agent. And so salt was very critical. Do you know how important salt was? Do you realize that the word salary comes from the word salt? How many knew that? Do you guys know any ethmology of words? Isn't that powerful? Do you get an idea how valuable salt is? And in the ancient Israelite world, do you know where they got salt from? Come on, Kelly, you know where they got salt from. You've swam in it. The Dead Sea, it's a lot of minerals in the Dead Sea, but you know there's not just salt in the Dead Sea. There's all kinds of other minerals, and so it's not pure salt. So what happens when they bring the salt from the Dead Sea? They're bringing these other miracle, uh, minerals with it, but you know what they would like to do? Sometimes people, when they were selling it, everybody wants to make more money, so they begin to dilute it and add other minerals into it. And so pretty soon, the salt loses its ability to function. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. You know, what Jesus was saying, that though we may have the external appearance of a disciple, we need to have the internal properties. We must be filled with 
love. We must be filled with, the, with Christ's compassion to serve and to help other people. That's what must be driving our lives. And so I'm going to have a stand. I thank you for letting me go over just a couple of minutes here. Just, I'm going to have you stand, and we're going to ask God to help us tonight. Because, folks, we need to understand, you know, what discipleship is all about, the nature of it. You know, what did it cost God to provide this, you know, this relationship with him? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? I think it means that we have to be like him. And how many go, it's really difficult to be like him? Anybody ever discovered it's difficult to be like Jesus? I've already discovered that. I, I find it hard sometimes. Nobody else? Anybody else find it might be difficult to be like Christ? Of course it is. How many know that we actually need God to do a work inside of us? We need God's grace. You know, I cannot show grace unless God first shows me grace. I cannot show love unless God shows love in me, and then God can show love through me. Isn't that true? You know, unless I experience God's compassion, it's hard for me to show compassion. You know, I have to experience God's generosity in my life so that I can be a generous person. It's not originating from me. Anybody else relate to what I'm saying? I need God's grace in my life to be the kind of person I'm chatting about. And now I'm going to challenge us as a church family. I've thought about this. You know what? Of all the people on the planet, you know, who are going to, we're going to have, we're going to have, you know, this challenge come into our world. And I think the only hope for people coming into our country, refugees, that have a totally different ideology, have been taught many of them to hate and to be distrustful and have a, a false understanding of what we are really like. If they just meet an ordinary Canadian who just feels like, you know, you guys shouldn't be here, how are they gonna relate to that? They're gonna feel rejected. It's gonna reinforce already the feelings of, you know, the struggles that they have within themselves that, you know what, everything we were taught about the West is true. But you know what, if they meet people like you and me, people who will say, you know what, we love you because Christ loves you. And we show them grace and we begin to serve them and we begin to meet them at their point of need. Some of them may never change, but I'll tell you something, it's gonna rock their world. Because when we saw that video, what rocked Camille's world? What shattered his vision of what he was supposed to do? What changed his life? You say, well, yeah, he had a vision of Jesus. Yeah, but before he ever had a vision of Jesus, he had something else happen. He was in a car accident. You, don't you think God kind of orchestrated that? And God brought him into the lives of people who actually showed him unconditional love. And it was because of that that he began to question everything he'd ever been taught. Do you think it would be okay as your pastoral leader to phone and say, you know what, as a church family, we want to open our hearts to some of the refugees that are going to come into our city. We want to serve the people that other people may not want to serve. Can I say that about us, that we want to do that? Can I say that about us, that we want to be like Christ to these people, that we want to show his love to them? How many say, Pastor, my heart is with you. I hear what you're saying. I agree with this. I think this is what we need to do. We need to reach out to them. Rather than condemn them, rather than be afraid of them, we need to reach out and show Christ-like love to them. Can I do that on our behalf as a church? If I do that, and then I say to us later, listen, we're going to have this many families. I'm going to have you come and meet these families, and you're going to help serve them. Would you come and do that? Would you say, I'd be willing to take time out of my busy schedule to show Christ's compassion and love to people coming to our country? They may never thank you, but you're saying it doesn't matter. Because while I was a sinner, God demonstrated his love to me.
That's the least I can do to these people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight. You've talked to us about the nature of discipleship. And it's really a life of service. If we want to be great, we have to serve the people that others are walking by. Lord, you're speaking into our lives and you're addressing our fears. You're addressing our anger, our hurt. And Lord, it's so easy to just reflect it off to somebody else and direct our anger and our hurt and our pain to people that are coming. Some of them, maybe they are contributing to the problem and some of them aren't, but it doesn't matter. Lord, we have to love our enemies. We have to bless them and do good to them and care for them. And so, Father, help us to do that. We cannot do this in our own human emotional strength. We can't do it. We acknowledge that today. I pray that you will give us a supernatural love in our hearts, a supernatural grace, Lord, that we can embrace, love, care, and serve. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.